0: Before we get to our guest, I wanted to talk to you about something that's really important to me, which is privacy. Moving money around, moving information, sending messages in today's world with web 3.0 coming down the pike, privacy is very critical, especially to a journalist like myself. Utopia P2P is a complete privacy ecosystem. It's a 360-degree approach to privacy. It includes everything you need to move information or value around the world. It includes a encrypted messenger service, an email platform and cryptocurrency payment system. It's fully decentralized, so it's not on any main server. It's based on blockchain, so it's distributed. It has an unmatched level of security. It has a feature-rich toolkit on the system uh, that supports 28 languages, There's a very low barrier to entry, and it also supports Bitcoin and also their coin internally. So if you're looking for a way to move information and money around the world, where you don't want prying eyes Uh, looking at what you're doing, go to Utopia P2P and have complete privacy on their system. And now let's get to our guest.
1: So today in American Conversations, uh, Jane Hampton Cook is joining us. She's a colleague. She's a contributor to CDM.press. She's written on vaccinations in the military uh, for CDM.press. And Jane, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Well, I'm excited about this because you are a real historian. You are a scholar on the founding fathers here in America. And um, we wanted to you and I had some discussions about, you know, the 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 similarities between what went on during the Revolutionary War uh, and what exactly is going on today, you know, in terms of these mandated vaccinations, the demonstrations. People having the convoys from Canada to Australia to Canberra uh, in the capital to Ottawa in Canada. Uh, and, and, you know, we know that there's going to be a convoy leaving from California across the U.S. starting February 23rd now. Mm-hmm. And we know that there are convoys in Israel. There's convoys going into Brussels across Europe. Uh, so let's just get into this. Okay. What is your perspective Um And mention your books, because I want people to understand you really are a deep diver scholar into, you know, the history. What's your perspective on what is going on today and the similarities and how the founders would perceive this?
2: Well, I really think that the founders would look at the convoys as a form of of protest, similar. um, I think they might think of the Boston Tea Party, because that was a visual demonstration. And it's, You've seen how Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister of Canada, has responded to that by going after their financing, you know, describing them as terrorists um, through the through the finance minister. And I think that they would look at what happened with the Boston Tea Party, not so much the demonstration itself, but how the king responded. Because mm-hmm. he he came back to the colonists instead of listening to their concerns and trying to work out an agreement. He just dissolved the legislature of Massachusetts. He took the governor of Massachusetts and replaced him with a military general. So he went really hard. And some of the Virginians, by 1776, they said in the newspapers that the King and Parliament had responded to their petitions and their protest with increased insult, oppression, and a vigorous attempt at their total destruction. And you when you're taking on people's ability to earn a living and trying to get rid of their licenses, their bank accounts, that's a vigorous attempt at their total destruction. And so I think it's fascinating and highly concerning that why can't Canada be be like Norway? Why can't it be like the UK that's gotten rid of their restrictions and mandates? Um, Why is Justin Trudeau doubling and tripling down instead of looking at what other world leaders are doing? And so that's that's a real question that I don't have an answer to. I have theories, but I don't have an answer. But I think that that sort of tyrannical spirit almost is what I think we're seeing on display with what's going on.
1: What do you think? Do you, do you think it has any connections to the Davos group? Because we know that Macron, you know, has come down hard in uh, in Paris. We know that um, you know Trudeau has, and I think it's because of the words he chose in the well of the parliament calling them terrorists, calling them misogynists, calling them racists, mentioning swastika, which, you know, I'm not going to deny that there may have been a swastika of, you know, flag that's there. I'm not going to, there probably is an Antifa flag there in Canada, uh, even though, you know, we're the people who who bore uh, Antifa here in the United States, but that's not the majority. I mean, Todd Wood and I have interviewed, and and we're getting live streams from the people in Canada, and we're talking to people on the ground. And that certainly is not the majority of what's going on. They have families, they have not jungle gyms, but they have those rubber, whatever you want to call them, slides, you know, that are downtown for the kids. And I mean, this is, it's a family affair. It's like a festival. It's a festival, right. So how do how do people have to put this in context of, you know, not being afraid? Because uh-huh. I think that that's part of it. You know, there was an interview that I saw uh, of some of the truckers yesterday, and it was just fifteen minutes, telling everybody very calmly, sitting in sitting in his car, or his truck. You know come down to Ottawa. Don't bring the children this time. Come down because the 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 warning they were going by the trucks and they were putting these warning written warnings into the trucks that they were going to, you know <laughs> there was going to be a pushback by the police. They were going to go after them. They were marked. So right. how do how do we respond to this? Because I think I think there's a bigger message here in terms of since Trudeau and his deputy minister, who's a woman mm-hmm. and McCron and people like Bill Gates are all graduates of the Davos Young Leaders Program. Mm-hmm. And is it the club, the Davos club that thinks that they can break everybody country by country?
2: Yeah, that that seems to be a commonality. And When, you know, I came across a letter from George Washington to Lafayette, and this was right after the Constitution was adopted by the Congress, but before it was fully ratified by the states and Mm -hmm. before George Washington was elected president. And they were discussing, you know, should there be term limits on the presidency? Because they were concerned about a president being bribed or, as George Washington put it, under influence, you know, under some sort of influence. And Washington said, if that happened, that would be a sign that that person was in the last stages of moral corruption and political depravity. And I thought that was really fascinating, just the phrase under influence. And, you know, whenever a person is a leader of a country, their first priority needs to be the people of that country. and. I don't have enough evidence to, to know what's going on with the World Economic Forum, but it seems like there's a lot of influence that that seems to be greater than it should be um, in the way a lot of these leaders are making decisions, like you mentioned Macron and, and Bill Gates and some of the others. Um, and so there, that is a concern that I think needs a lot more investigation.
1: And and, and in, in during the days of the founders back in the 1700s, You know, the Treaty of Westphalia, which set up historically the -hmm. the sovereign state, was decided centuries before that. Talk talk about, um, I think it was, I want to say maybe it was a century before that. I think it was the 16, not 1684, something like that. But but, uh, maybe I got the numbers wrong, but it was definitely before. Talk about the importance of the sovereignty. Mm uh yes to the founders at the time uh, yes. and also about th- in terms of leadership and virtue how important that mm-hmm. was to the founders mhm
2: so one of the things that you know when a lot of times when people talk about the American revolution and what the the reasons for it were and i talked about this in my book Uh, It's a devotional called Stories of Faith and Courage from the Revolutionary War. You know, and I talked about no taxation without representation, which came from Samuel Adams. But what we don't realize is how much corruption the founders were seeing of their government in the colonies. Because uh, before King George became president, I mean, president, sorry, before King George became king in 1760, the colonies paid for the salaries of the governors, of the judges, like from the legislative bodies. And one of the things that King George did is he said, uh-uh, when, as the tension built in the mid-1760s, he said, you know what? I'm going to pay the salaries of your governors. I'm going to pay the salaries of the judges. So what happened? Who were the judges and those governors loyal to? The king more than the people. And so it was leveraged. They saw their own sovereignty as independent colonies that because they considered themselves almost independent nations. They saw that eroded by the crown. And it got worse because when they began to do a lot of those taxes, um, the judges in the admiralty court, like a ship would be confiscated. The ship owner would be accused of smuggling. Well there was no motive for the judge to rule in the ship owner, the defendant's um, favor because the judge could get a cut of the sale of that ship if he found against the defendant. So there was major corruption in those courts. There was a lot of bribery going on as well. And so they saw their system, their sovereignty just gradually eroded and corrupted over several years. So it wasn't just about taxes, it was truly a corruption of their government. And I found this quote from John Adams from 1770. So this was before the Boston Tea Party, before we declared independence, but he nailed corruption because he said, when a government is totally corrupted, the rules of good government are reversed. Virtue Um, integrity are attacked by malice and dishonesty and hatred and revenge. And he said a good governor whose job is to take care of the welfare of the people is doing doing the opposite, and then he gets rewarded for it. Um, And then I love this because it honestly reminds me of some of our federal medical bureaucrats because he said even the philanthropist, the humanitarian in society propagates lies and slander and is rewarded for it. And that, I just think, I don't know who he knew that was a humanitarian that Mm -hmm. was doing that, but it just makes me think of some of the people leading our federal medical bureaucracy who we know have lied to Congress over the origins of COVID and where it came from, Dr. Fauci. Um, And so I think it's fascinating that he nailed what happens when there is disintegration, corruption, um, that it inverts everything. The, what is up is down, what is down is up. and virtue and integrity become lost um, and they get replaced with other things. And so that was that was a warning that he had.
1: So So basically what you're saying is as a historian that that the whole conversation about human nature, the good, the bad, the ugly, Right. We repeat it from century to century, and we have to be on our guard.
2: That's right. And, you know, Adams also said in 1772 that the preservation of liberty would depend on the intellect and the moral character, the intellectual and moral character of the people. And he said you would have to, and I'm paraphrasing here, you'd have to have knowledge diffused throughout society. Because you you wouldn't want to debase the understanding of the people. And you know, if the people were corrupted, then, then you would also lose liberty. And when I, I thought about what it, well, what is debasing people's understanding? Well, okay, we see things like cancel culture today. We see doctors who have a different opinion, a second opinion compared to the federal medical bureaucracy, they're getting canceled. They're getting shut off Twitter. They're being you know, t- told by Dr. Collins, let's shut down the Great Barrington Declaration, d- Declaration, which happened in 2020. And we now have an email proving that they were trying to shut down these well-esteemed doctors who had a different approach. And that is debasing people's understanding. When you don't have integrity in how people get their information, it's not their fault Ms. at all. It's that they're not getting the truth and integrity from a variety of opinions in, in, the, in the press and what they're learning. Um, and I think that was fascinating to me that he saw that as a threat to liberty as well.
1: Which brings us to Thomas Jefferson's statements, and I can't quote them and you probably can, about the importance <laughs> of the freedom of the press.
2: Yes. So they understood that the press had to be free. And, you know, Jefferson um, he even set up a, a newspaper when the government was getting started under the U.S. government because he saw one newspaper was presenting only one side, and he f- helped finance an opposition newspaper to give a different perspective, and he, he wanted that balance out in the public discourse. That's how much he valued you know, freedom of the press. And freedom of speech, and you know, one thing I discovered uh, going uh, to Ben Franklin.
1: I was just going to say, his, bro- his brother had a newspaper up yes, in Massachusetts. Yes, and, so yes. tell, the, tell the story of, about that because that's a very interesting story. Yes.
2: So, um yeah. So Ben Franklin was a teenager. He was helping his brother publish this newspaper, and he had. This is a little hard for us to understand, but newspapers were new.
1: They were not. An existence. But it's like it's like the Internet, too, when you think yes. about it going back 20 years.
2: Yes, exactly. So in 1722, newspapers were new and the authorities, the British authorities did not like James Franklin's newspaper because it criticized them. And so they arrested James while James was in jail Ben Franklin wrote his silence do good articles where he changed his persona so that no one would know who was writing these articles. And he talked about the importance of freedom of speech and freedom of thought that, you know, freedom of thought, you wouldn't have wisdom without freedom of thought and without freedom of thought, there would be no freedom of speech. And wasn't then, there
1: wasn't there a special meaning to his pseudonym that he used at that, that Ben Franklin used when his brother was in jail?
2: Yes. So silence was the first name. Do good. So mm-hmm. he was making a statement, even just in his nickname that he was using, his pseudonym. You know, he didn't want to be silenced. And he allowed himself this to, to print, present these ideas about freedom of speech. And that just shows you that he didn't really have it, right? He didn't really have freedom of speech. Right, because he press. had to use a
1: byline that was not exactly. his own.
2: And they used, you know, e- really even through the first probably 20 years of the United States, they used pseudonyms. Even though they had freedom of speech under the Constitution, they still used anonymity a lot. I think it just took a while for people to to believe it, you know, that that they could use, write under their own name. and uh, But Franklin, so that was 1722, and then he goes off later. His brother does get out of jail, but his brother publishes the newspaper under Ben's name because he can't use his own name. The authorities require that he have a license, and he doesn't want to get a license, so he just publishes under Ben's name. But after a while, their business partnership split up. So Ben went to to Philadelphia and started his own newspaper. And then when he's about 25 years old, he publishes an ad in the newspaper that criticizes the clergy. It wasn't his ad. It was somebody else's. And it sounds silly to us because they just compared the clergy to to loud birds. But that really upset a lot of people in Philadelphia. And so they were threatening to deny him, not just boycott his business and not take his newspaper, deny him all custom, which meant cutting him off socially. And that was very upsetting to him. So what he did is he wrote what he called an apology for printers and he laid out principles of freedom of speech and freedom of the press. And he explained, look, when I buy shoes from the local cobbler, it doesn't matter what my opinions are, right? The opinion of the buyer and the seller, that doesn't matter. But in newspapers, it's chiefly about opinion. And so he believed that truth and error needed to have fair play, that you needed to present all sides. His job was not to tell his readers the truth. His job was to make sure that they had enough points of view presented that they could make up their own mind. And when you think about him as a scientist, you think, okay, well, he's thinking about not malice not malicious things. He's thinking about hypotheses, putting forward an idea and letting it risk being wrong because, because by evidence and over time, you can maybe come up with the, the accuracy, the facts, the truth. So he put forward these principles and other newspaper editors copied them and published them. So they became sort of a standard for decades. And and it he really you know, put down the marker, he refused to close his press, and then he just prospered um, and succeeded by by standing up for truth and um, fair play of ideas. And that, you know, so he lived through a type of cancel culture. And I think he would be very sad at what he sees. And I actually found a few days ago, he had written a personal liturgy. Uh, he replaced that with going to church. And it was about giving praise to God, adoration and thanks. And he thanked God for the gift of speech and knowledge um, and literature. That was so important to him that it was even part of that liturgy that he wrote um, for himself. So that just kind of he's not considered the most religious of our founders. But even within that, you see this evidence of how important speech and knowledge and literature were to him.
1: So let's talk about the Bill of Rights because that is the Bill of Rights here in the United States and not every uh, country in the world has a Bill of right. Rights. Canada does have a Charter for Freedom that was passed in I think it was 1981, it's just recent wow. recent you know time. Yeah. But let's talk about the, the how the the Bill of Rights is being chipped away today, which is the foundation added to the Constitution that is the freedom of speech assembly, the press, and and the importance of of, uh, how that was decided, because it seems to me historically, the letters uh, between the founders, the discourse between them, there's so much written uh, that has been saved historically uh and it's not just during the founders even even through the abolitionist movement here in the united states Mm -hmm. garrison and people had publications that's right but how much how much do you think his i mean from a historical perspective is being chipped away and and how do we get this back on track
2: well the the bill of rights i was i saw a letter from washington um, before the Bill of Rights. And he said, everybody agrees that there needs to be a Bill of Rights. Let's get the Constitution settled, and then let's work on the Bill of Rights. And
1: why, I, was that, why didn't that happen simultaneously? I think
2: because they needed to get, they couldn't fully agree on what all should be in the Bill of Rights. They knew that certain things were, he said, like, for example, trial by jury. He said, everybody agrees that we need to have jury trials. But there's some other things that maybe that should be a state, you know, in the states. And so they wanted to get what was fully agreed upon, um, signed off by the states first. And then in his inaugural address, he suggests that there are measures that Congress needs to take up because two states had not joined the United States under the Constitution when George Washington became president, North Carolina and Rhode Island. And so Madison stood up in Congress. He was a congressman, James Madison, and said, we need to fulfill our promise on this Bill of Rights. So Madison had gone through all of the, the ratification conventions and what their disagreements were with the Constitution. And he came up of, with a list of 200 possible amendments to the Constitution. Wow. Yeah. And so then the Senate sorted through all of that in the House, and they got it down to 12. And I think the, um, there, the re, there's a reason why our First Amendment has several rights in it. They grouped them together. But they were, um, what I think is interesting is there were 12 amendments. The first two that, that got voted on were about Congress's power, and they failed. The Third Amendment was about freedom of speech, freedom of press, freedom of religion, the right to petition, and the right to, to um, protest peacefully. And... That was third, but the people rejected the first two about Congress and they elevated it to the first.
1: And I think what were the two congressional uh, amendments that they It was
2: about their I think it had to do with their like their salaries and maybe how their districts were apportioned, like how many people per district. I mean, they they were valid things to consider, but the people really weren't all that interested (laughs) in Congress's power they wanted to see those core freedoms
1: influence. which really has to do with individual rights
2: yes they wanted uh, their which, yes. which
1: is you know something that we talk about when people talk about the common good right now right we you know the common good is it seems in the discourse with some of these globalists mm. the common good globally should supersede the individual rights right, which is which is a, a construct a basis something that we treasure here in the United States. Right.
2: That's collectivism versus individual rights.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: and the um what what's interesting this past year in um 2021 was the 230th anniversary of the Bill of Rights because Virginia was the last state needed to ratify the the 10 of the 12 amendments and that happened December 15, um 1791. And what I found out was that it was actually uh, President Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, in um, on the hundred and fiftieth anniversary in nineteen forty one, he right. established Bill of Rights Day.
1: December fifteenth, I think it is.
2: Yes, mm-hmm. so he established Bill of Rights Day, and they had planned to have this, you know, people throughout the United States to do events for Bill of Rights Day. Um, they had already announced it and planned that. And then Pearl Harbor happened on the 7th. And so you could even see an intensity and a passion shift from the proclamation, which was kind of dry, to Franklin's comments on Bill of Rights Day. And he was saying, hey, we are not gonna let our, the freedoms that we value are at stake and that the totalitarians of Mussolini and Hitler wanna take all that away from, from the world, from people. And he, there was this, there was a renewed commitment to the Bill of Rights at the very beginning of our entry into World War II, both from President Roosevelt, and then there's these beautiful speeches and opinion editorials from newspaper editors. Rabbi Rabbi Silver gave this beautiful speech on Bill of Rights Day, tying. You know, our liberties that our boys are going to be fighting for in Europe are the same ones that they fought for at Valley Forge. And there was a cultural commitment to the Bill of Rights. And even in the newspaper world, they knew that they were going to have to maybe not always reveal everything they knew because they had to protect the troops. But there was this commitment to freedom of the press and freedom of speech. And that was cultural. Entertainers got in on it. Kate Smith, who was a radio personality, issued her 10 golden rules of democracy. Um, And uh, Orson Welles, you know. And so I think what the difference is, we had this emergency with COVID. And we had, we did not have a cultural affirming of our rights from the beginning. You know, there wasn't a, there wasn't, we've had this cancel culture creeping into our society over the past few years. And so we didn't have that same commitment and focus like we did at World War II, facing an emergency. And I think what this whole thing has taught me is that whenever there is an emergency, we have to, as a people, culturally, and as a government, make sure that we protect those rights when we're facing a crisis and an
1: emergency. And did the Biden administration do anything about December fifteenth, twenty twenty-one? I didn't see anything. I
2: did not. Now I think in June, on the anniversary of uh, Madison proposing that they talk about the Bill of Rights, I think there was something that the the White House, like a proclamation, but there just wasn't much discussion of the anniversary. Well all. it is it, it's
1: you know it would it, theoretically it would be the antithesis of what they were pushing at the time because what right. they were pushing is mandates and right. mandates n- nullifies yes the bill of rights yes and taking yes. parental p- taking parental rights away yes and, over children and taking away uh and not really having the true definition of informed consent exactly Yes. So we have, we have a, a, is it fair to conclude that we have a a federal government philosophically, if not politically, uh, leading as the antithesis of the Bill of Rights? Or is that just too strong?
2: I don't think that's too strong um, because I would like to see them come out and affirm those, those rights. And they haven't, um, you know, I, I, I have had a pharmaceutical product, give me an autoimmune condition that I deal with daily. And so I knew that I had to be careful with the vaccines just for my own sake, because I've had an, a very adverse event response to a pharmaceutical product. So I'm hypersensitive is how my doctors describe me.
0: Mm-hmm. And so
2: not everybody's the same. Not everybody handles Medication in the same way, and that needs to be something that's a really truly an individual conversation with your physician. But your physician has to have the right information too,
1: and, and has, has the ex- capability to give you an exemption if, in case something's exactly. mandated under whether your child going into a school, exactly, or somebody exactly. who wants to hold on to their job.
2: Yeah, exactly. Exactly, and you know the one thing that. Uh, one thing you know, the, the the founders were concerned about power, and they they believed any system could be corrupted—a monarchy, you know, a direct democracy, a republic like what we have—because they understood that people, the ambition of power, could corrupt people. But that's why they spread the power out, right? In the federal government, we have three branches. Within the legislative branch, we have two bodies. Um, that was a big shift for them. Um, and then they have the power divided between the federal, state, and local. So we have power shared, and that's that's what they wanted. And I think the silver linings that we have seen have come from certain governors who've had a different approach than the federal government. We have seen some judges, you know, say no to the mandates. I, I think there's still a need, especially with the military, to I think they, they're suffering for not having a judge just put a hold on it for the entire military yet um, until it can all be determined. But that our system is still working. I think it's on life support in a lot of ways, but there are the, the, ven-
1: the ventilator, you know, the, yeah. <laughs> it may be on the ventilator, it folks, may
2: be on the ventilator, Seriously. it needs some ivermectin or something. I don't
1: know. But, I know. <laughs> I know, but I, know. But, but, but I do
2: think people, you see people standing up. I mean, that's how General, I mean, uh, Governor Yunkin got elected in Virginia because parents were standing up at board meetings with their concerns. Um, and it, you, you know, I think people are ex- voicing their um, position on different issues in a way that we haven't really probably seen in a while. But there's a lot of work to be done, and I think there's a lot of investigative, in uh, reporting. I guess that that I think I don't think we have all the information
1: of what no, the whole big
2: story is. It's and
1: it's it's a biggie. It's a yeah. biggie. Isn't it? The, yeah. it? and it's a global story, and yeah. it's a corrupt story, a, cor- yeah. a corporation and agency story. Yeah. Um. So, in your examination, which historically, what you're talking about is that the founders. The founders wanted to separate the power because if you only had it totally centralized, then it could be even, it could be totally corrupt. But it also, it also, they looked at accountability.
2: Right. Yes. And they expected the people to hold their government officials accountable. And the, but that also was dependent on the people having an understanding of what What's really going on, and that that knowledge would be diffused throughout society. So that's where the role of the media, and the need, you know, for CD media and other outlets, and for more people to get their information from a variety of sources, um, to help really be informed. And um,
1: and that also included the value of education.
2: Yes, because yes.
1: because the founders were educated. There's there's no one that was a founder that was illiterate.
2: Correct. They were very well educated because they were a reading culture. They didn't couldn't turn on the television, you know, right. they were not an entertainment culture. They were a reading culture. And so I mean, the, the number of books that some of these gentlemen had in their libraries, Abigail Adams was so educated well educated because she read her father's library. and he encouraged her to do that. Um, and that's why she could quote Shakespeare, you know, um, to her husband um, in discussing something, you know, um, because she, had, she was very well educated um, on, you know, just learning at home um, through those library books. But they were, and they, they understood, one thing I could tell through John Adams' writings is that he had really studied um, his ancient history and, and how it, what those governments were like in Athens and Rome and how they worked and how they didn't. And he, he, really, um, he really had that understanding. And what I think is kind of fascinating is that I did a search through the writings of the founders, and George Washington never used the word democracy. There's one possibility where it was in a speech, but I don't think he came up with it. I don't think he ultimately used it. He used the word republic, I think, 131 times. John Adams used the word democracy more because he was talking about Athens and their democracy. But he used republic 300 something times, I believe. So they were very well read on the history of governments in the world. And, um, and they were very well read, of course, in the history of the monarchy in England. And um, that going back to that sovereign state, you know, idea that they had of a nation state. So, yeah, they were and they wanted they want they really saw that the arts and sciences were the key to American prosperity in the future. They wanted to see more study of the natural world and of of. Um, and to grow. And uh, one of the first things that Alexander Hamilton did as treasury secretary is he took an inventory of manufacturing and wanted to know what we were producing in America. You know, they wanted- In the wanted different, colonies, to, be, you know,
1: in the different colonies, because each colony at the time yes. had their own, I don't want to say culture, but they they, they had their own yes. uh, landscape.
2: Yeah. They did, and they produced certain things in certain colonies and they, need, they needed to know what all that was and um, for trade purposes and um, to understand where they could grow. And that was really important to them. And education was certainly a really important, important piece of all of that.
1: Let's talk about how they, how they um, looked at medicine in those days, and 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 mm. the societies that that were developed as a result of what would be considered medicine. I mean, it, you know, it was it was, right. it, was uh, it certainly wasn't as advanced in terms of science or germs or anything like that. But the value of the human being, they they were not into eugenics. No,
2: they um, not at all. They they had books on anatomy. They had um, books on physical science. What you know, you what they had what scientists I guess had dissected and they knew, you know, about the, the human body. Um, they didn't obviously, like you said, have the germ theory and the, the pills and things like that. They relied on a lot of tonics and what and herbs and, and herbs and what they knew from the natural world, what they knew that opium was a painkiller. They knew that they knew that certain things were, 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 were good for certain outcomes. You know, they'd figured a lot of that out. And I found a story during the revolution where George Washington receives a letter from a British surgeon in the, in the army for the British. And apparently the Patriots, the Continental Army, had taken a wagon that had 72 books in it that were the surgeons. And they were his books on anatomy And they were his kind of, I think, his lifeblood to to practicing medicine. And Washington replied to him and said, yes, we will return them to you. And it took a little while for him to find where they were, but he sent them back. And I thought, okay, you're in war. The enemies lost their medical books. But you have the ethics and integrity to say, I'm going to give them back to you because I'm not gonna deny a soldier who's wounded the, what he needs to, to, from his surgeon physician to, to be healed. And so that, that just shows you the ethics that they had about humanity. I mean, there were, there were rules of war and that they were following, but that, that was something that, that I think that speaks a lot of his integrity.
1: Where do you where do you think this this balance this conversation that they had these letter writings about virtue integrity morality leadership what is where is that I mean what's the basis of that at that time with those men and some of their wives
2: they um, you know I think a lot of it was um, their like I noticed that the word honor appeared. 4,000 times in George Washington's writings. And a lot of times it was the word, um, it was like your honor, you know, like you would, we hear that maybe in a courtroom, but I think they said it to a lot of different types of people in society. And one of the things that I read in George, King George's writings is that when it came to education, in a republic, you would have to focus on patriotism. In a monarchy, you focused on honor. And in a despotism, you, you focused on fear. And so I get the impression that honor was a big part of English culture and Mm -hmm. that this virtue and integrity was, was, was just prioritized and that you, you earned your way through society, through your reputation for virtue and integrity. When George Washington uh, he was invited in 1780 during the war to join the American Philosophical Society. And that was a group of scientists and they were devoted to acquiring useful knowledge. Um, someone else who was invited at that time was one of Washington's civil engineers who was building fortifications and whatnot. And Washington said to the society that he was proud to be a part of men of virtue and philosophical knowledge. Philosophy was also another word that they used for science back then too. And that, that showed you how much attention they put and priority they put on the word virtue. They really wanted um, society to have sort of a moral standard and ethics. And um, even, the, you know, even the meanings of the colors and the flag have virtues attached to them uh, Red means valor and hardiness, which is the ability to withstand all seasons. Um, White means purity and innocence. Purity speaks to motive, the motive of liberty and freedom, loyalty. Um, Innocence is of course the children in society, the future, the millions to come as George Washington called us. And then blue stands for the virtues of perseverance, vigilance and justice. And so they, that's how important a lot of those qualities really were to them. And I would like to see in education when we teach about the meaning of the flag or when we teach about the flag, here's what our flag looks like, that Mm -hmm. they emphasize those meanings. Because I don't think they do that at all. Like I've never seen it in my kids' textbooks, civics textbooks, that they even mention what those colors mean. But those are great qualities, right, that society can, you know. Embrace. And how did they
1: how did they come to the choice of the colors in the flag?
2: We don't know specifically. We know that in 1777, when they adopted the flag, they did not decide then what the colors meant. They they focused on the union of the stars and stripes. So it was the meaning of the flag is truly unity. In we still you know we have our fifty states are represented by fifty stars now on the flag. But in 1782, at the end of the war, I think they just had more time to reflect and they had seen the valor of John Paul Jones, surrender, I have not yet begun to fight. They knew the poetry of Phyllis Wheatley who talked about freedom and she switched from writing poems to King George III about him to writing poems about George Washington, um, speaking to that motive, of that purity of motive. And then I think they just had witnessed the heroism of the war, and I think that's what inspired them to come up with those those qualities. Because they, you know, they were creating the symbolism of the eagle and the seal flying freely. Um, there's nothing holding on to that eagle, and in one hand are those those arrows for war, and then the the, the um, olive branch of peace. So they they just had time to reflect at the end of the war, and that's when they came up with the meanings of the colors.
1: So how do you think the founders would be looking at this and and you know we I mean are there specific founders that you think that they would take a look at what is happening right now and have just horrifying disdain? Yes, because of what they believed in.
2: Yeah, I think that they would I think they'd recognize the, the, the dispersion of power, the the skeleton, the structure of the branches of government and the different levels of government. But I think they would really probably look at the human nature aspect and just see that some things have gotten off kilter um, and that our commitment to um, integrity and other qualities has, has slipped. Um, and I think they would be very sad at what, kind of state we're in culturally right now. Um,
1: any, does any any one of the founders come to mind specifically?
2: Well, I think John Adams comes to mind because of how much he wrote about corruption and how much he analyzed human nature. He certainly had a grasp for it. Um, and he said that Americans would need to not be tame, not be timid in order to preserve their liberty. And, um, I think that that he comes to mind, but I really think you know Samuel Adams would recognize. Um, he'd certainly recognize the the spirit of liberty in the truckers, you know, because he was behind the Sons of Liberty and a lot of what they did. Um, and really, all I would you know George Washington would would be concerned. Um, he really, I have realized in reading some of his letters around the time that he became president, he was very proud of America for the way they, they negotiated the constitution because it didn't lead to another revolution, like a bloody revolution that they worked through that problem civilly. And that's what they wanted for America to be able to do was to resolve those issues um, with, you know the the petitions of the government to, for those to get resolved civilly and um so i think that that's just something that they prized
1: and whose quote comes to mind if they if if any of the founders had listened to uh justin trudeau's misogynist racist mm. terrorist statement in the well of the canadian parliament who who i mean I just found that startling in contrast to the the people that we were talking to on the street.
2: Yeah, the, um, you know, I think that they would see that, you know, the, the John Adams quote, you know, in such times you will see a governor endeavor to ruin and destroy the people whose welfare he was under every moral obligation to study and promote. Um, the, and he, he the iron rod of power will be stretched out versus the people that that's the result when you have that kind of rhetoric coming from the leader. You know, um, one of the things that happened in the revolution is that King George the never read their olive branch petition. He didn't even read it. He just dismissed it. And declared war against them. He declared that they were in a state of rebellion. That was January of 1776. Rebellion taking
1: a- out assembly, uh, objecting to, you know, overreach of the government yep. was not accepted at the time. Yeah. Because and they had
2: and they, they were not worked hard on that petition, that olive branch petition was sort of their la- was their last attempt to go through a civil process. It's almost team. similar to
1: the truckers because yeah. the truckers have been asking to meet with Trudeau. Trudeau has dismissed them, yes. denied them, uh defamed them, <clears throat> and basically taken draconian action yeah. by uh asserting the emergency act in Canada to destroy them by yeah. taking their money. So I mean, this is this is almost worse than the Tea Party. Yeah, it is. But it's similar it's- to King George yeah, in terms of dismissing them and not meeting with them.
2: Exactly. it's that it's definitely that um, tyranny. you know, they they called in the Declaration of Independence. they named they called out King George's tyranny. They called him a tyrant. and because that's what he had become to them. Um, and one of the things I looked at in my stories of faith and courage from the Revolutionary War book, I asked this question, because I was really curious, how did people of faith come to the conclusion <laughs> that it was okay by their faith to take up arms against their king? Because even if they may not have believed, I mean, there were some kings of England who thought they were part God. King Charles was that way. Mm-hmm. But they still believed that their their king was God given to them, right? And And what I discovered is that there were multiple sermons on King George comparing him to Pharaoh in the Old Testament, comparing the American colonists to the the Israelites and how God freed the Israelites from that enslavement. And then they also looked to Galatians 5.1. It is for freedom that Christ came, therefore stand firm for liberty, basically. That's where they landed the ones that were patriots the patriot ministers that's how they they realized okay in this case my ruler has become a tyrant and i am supposed to by my christian faith stand firm against liberty and they tried all of these different ways first. me stand these, firm these, against
1: you mean stand firm against taking away my liberty.
2: Yes, that's what I meant. Yeah, I didn't say that right. Stand firm for liberty and um, to stand against the tyranny. That's the that's that's what I meant. And that's how they processed it from a faith perspective. But
1: they the, did... and the churches were the churches opened when the, when the ministers spoke from the pulpit, even though you had different um, congregations uh, in the United States, mm-hmm. were a lot of the ministers speaking out.
2: Yes, and that was a tipping point because that was the tipping point for John Adams when he realized that ministers from the pulpit in May of 1776 were talking about. Maybe Providence doesn't want America to be connected to England. Maybe it's time to separate. He realized that if people and ministers were talking about it from the pulpit, then then the people were ready, that it, it had really reached full saturation. And because it really was not common to talk about politics from the pulpit that was really taboo. It wasn't which, something- Which is
1: where the founders came down on separation of church and state. But yes. it, there, there becomes a, um, a moral duty mm-hmm. when you see people enslaved for whatever yes. reason. Yes. Uh, you know, the Quakers took the lead on it here in the United States mm-hmm. for um, the abolition movement. Yes. Yes. But in the days of the revolution, you're saying that the, the, the ministers, even though they were different congregations in different states yes. and within the states, or the colonies, I should say, yeah, they were speaking out against it. That's a yes. little bit like Martin Luther King. Yes. That's a little bit like Gandhi. That's like Tutu. Right. It's like Mandela. okay? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when people is. have a, they have a higher crawl into the morality and the consciousness of a society that yeah. this is a pivotal time and moment and to be firm in their faith to do the right thing just because it's the right thing to do.
2: Exactly. And there is some analysis that suggests that some of the ministers who had more recently come from England were too tied to the Church of England and they just they they had to go back because they couldn't go there but the ministers who'd been in America or whose families had been here for generations they they were the ones standing up and it was it was the Baptist um, David Jones was a Baptist minister who was a chaplain for the for the Continental Army it was the Presbyterians through Reverend Duffield it was the Anglicans the J- Reverend, you know Jacob Duchesne, who um, spoke about Psalm 35 in 1774 to the Continental Congress, and they had a hard time deciding which minister to bring in. They had a fight over it, and it was Samuel Adams who stood up and said, "I am not a bigot. I can hear the prayer." Who of a man who is, you know, virtuous and a friend to his country, basically, is what what he meant. And they had to overcome some of their differences. Theologically, they had to put that aside and say, OK, we're going to unite here on what we have in common. And even some of the Anglican ministers, were; their alarm bells got raised when at one point the Church of England sent a lot of bishops in the lead up to the American Revolution. They were trying to, you know. Keep the people sort of locked in by sending their own more bishops. So this is their last control. This,
1: was this their last resort? Yeah. Feel guilty because you're yeah. because you, because we're bishops and we're going to tell you what to do because the exactly. king obviously overplayed his card.
2: Exactly, and, and you know they were arresting Baptist ministers in Virginia, the authorities were in 1774. That's what spurred Thomas Jefferson and James Madison to call for religious liberty. That was one of the main main. Um, you know, abuses of power that they saw uh, against, you know, the the church, um, different churches. And so, you know, we had a Catholic, one Catholic gentleman signed the Declaration of Independence, Mr. Carroll, and then two signed the um, Constitution. Um, And, you know, because Maryland was a Catholic colony. So they really did come together. And, Adams really described it is that the revolution was more than just a war. It was a change in people's religious sentiments of their affections, their opinions, that that was the real American revolution. And that there was such a great variety of religions, of customs, of manners, that it was really hard to unite them. Um, But that's the beauty of that story of that. We did overcome a lot of those differences, not to the point where, you know, JFK was still having to deal with the Catholicism issue with the presidency, but, you know, they came a long way for their day. Um, so how, do you, how do
1: you think, let me ask you this, because, and I'm sure this publicly. So the, um when President Biden came in, Mm-hmm. He re- reestablished the office of faith-based and mm-hmm. community engagement at the White House, and I was listening. In even even though it wasn't for the press, I did it anyways. Mm-hmm. In February, uh, starting twenty twenty-one, and I was, I, I found it fascinating uh, because at that time, the people on the phone call from the White House were telling everybody that's on the phone call that they wanted the faith-based leaders. Mm-hmm. to get married to the unions. Those weren't named, but, you know, I take a look back at it now. I want to say probably teachers uh, and, and to, to black community yeah. leaders. And they wanted the churches to host, quote unquote, COVID mm-hmm. events, mm-hmm. because these are places of worship uh, and trust in a community because they're places right. of worship to quote unquote, validate the COVID vaccines. Mm-hmm. Their words, not mine. hmm How do you think the founders would feel about that being implemented? And then there were subsequent phone calls of the trillions of dollars that were going to be spent rolling out this COVID vaccine. And at that point in time, in spring of uh, 2021, no one was talking about mandates. Right. These are the early Mm roll-ups, but we all know Mm -hmm. now, looking back, that Zillions of dollars have been spent from the federal government to the state level, to the local departments of health, to the churches, to the theaters, to the God uh-huh. knows every group that's been involved to push this. Uh-huh. How would the founders feel about that?
2: Well, I think that, you know, how it, Jefferson who wrote the Wall of Separation letter, mm-hmm. um, And I think they would see that as the government using churches to push their policy. And I don't think that that's what they intended at all for there to be, that's not, that's not freedom of religion. That's using the churches as a community. um, As a political arm. It's a political political arm. arm. And, you know, my husband was the faith-based director for Homeland Security in two thousand and seven, eight, and the original faith-based initiative was to prevent discrimination against faith-based faith-based groups who were doing community things like hosting the homeless, um, who were engaged in some of those social. Activity, the social program charities. activities. So they were
1: basically, that, basically charities.
2: Yeah, charities. Original yeah, charities, right? So that was the original purpose of the faith-based initiative. It wasn't to push a political agenda. It was to let them have freedom to compete, so that they could, so they wouldn't be discriminated against when it came to charitable, you know, type things. Um, and you know, it kind of goes back to the lack of having. Full informed consent. You know, the ministers haven't had all of the information that they probably needed about the vaccines
1: either. Of course not. You know, of course not. And, so, and, and 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 be and we we know that laws have been passed now for people who administer. It's not just the the. There's no product liability for the you know mm-hmm. pharmaceutical companies for the vaccination programs, or for even medical device manufacturers here in the United States have somewhat of the same, you know, no product liability. But we also have no liability for people pushing out something that they may not realize or take the responsibility to know that can cause harm. So we have, and it's almost, I'm looking at this and analyze it as an investigative journalist. Mm -hmm. They're almost, it's a CYA game you know if we get everybody involved to do the wrong thing yeah. then you know it's just we didn't know
2: yeah
1: we didn't know
2: yeah
1: but the problem is we know that they know because they we know that um they withheld information from the public we yes. know that now yes. and so that that's going to change the game here going down the road
2: right right but they
1: put other people at risk because people trusted them exactly so what happens what happens uh when people wake up like they did during the American Revolution, and they realize that their leadership like King George
2: mm-hmm.
1: basically thought of them uh here in the United States or not then the colonies as serfs peasants yes. uh puppets
2: mm-hmm.
1: commodified them uh as human beings pay without you know pay taxes without any representation right uh I can only think that there's a great analogy here because like then, now we have people going through this great awakening. Yes. Then we have a leadership of people saying, We're not going to put up with this. And maybe the masses didn't doesn't fully understand exactly what's going on. But I keep on thinking that when they wake up, God help those people in leadership that lied.
2: Yes, I think so. And I think there's a there's a roaring lion. Waking up collectively um, from people who are realizing um, what what has happened, and you know, I I heard yes, I was listening to a presentation yesterday, and I, this is almost just a question for you: Do they do Pfizer and Moderna and J and J actually call these products vaccines in their patent application or their applications to the government? Like, is is that even the word vaccine may be misleading because they're genetic therapies. So I just, I don't know. They changed
1: that, they actually changed the definition of vaccines. Mm, okay. All right. And so they've included the mRNA, what we call gene therapy, just for the layman's understanding of it. Right. that has been added into the definition of vaccines believe it or not I see. and and so the definition of vaccines has been changed in the dictionary somebody wow there was somebody in 2020 a woman in Connecticut um i was on the phone with her somebody asked me to talk to her and and she was telling me about this and it turned out to be true they actually changed it in the, wow. in the definition so yeah. when when we when they they use the terminology but again it's 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 the power of language right it's 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 a precondition for setting it up for using it but changing the definition of it so that legally they're covered yes uh but the truth is that they're not traditional vaccines but the average person doesn't know that because fauci gets up and says he calls them vaccines
0: right pharmaceutical
1: companies call them vaccines which gives somebody the assumption Oh, they must be safe because we've never right. had we've never had this global disaster ever on this scale let me put right. it that way, on this scale we right. have we have had corruption we have had uh, of corpora- uh, ph- uh, pharmaceutical corporations fined we have billions of dollars we have had people go to jail for the fraud mm-hmm. and but that still isn't known by a lot of people
2: yeah yeah
1: you know, i don't think the public quite un- even understands how the fda is financed by pharma yes for their clinical studies so you 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 have the fox watching the fox right in what we assume to be the hen house
2: right, right. all right
1: so <laughs> it's this, it's the system that we're trying to do at cdm.press with you know with todd and all mm-hmm. of us trying to educate people about what the system is because once they once they get this big picture they're going to understand how the rollout of the corruption happened right. and we know a lot. We've mm-hmm. connected a lot of dots. Mm-hmm. There's still more to come. And we know from some of the whistleblowers that we're talking to who are in the inside of the pharma companies. Mm-hmm. And also through the rollout coming out in the next several months by the courts demanding that Pfizer put out their documentation mm-hmm. that they wanted to have sealed for 75 years. Yes, and The judge said, no, put it out They put it out the first month then they went back to court and Pfizer said, oh, we just can't handle this. The judge said, you know, get off the bench. You're going to release it. Right. So it's, it's yes, they do change. It's the choice of language. Mm -hmm. That's why that's like words are so very important. Yes. And people asking how does this work is important. Mm -hmm. Yes.
2: Because if you're told that you're, you have a gene therapy choice,
1: it raises more questions. It
2: raises more questions. about, well, what is gene therapy? What is that going to do? What are the side effects? What are the? the but the trust that we've culturally developed over vaccines, that that's a different. That's how language is being used it, and it's to social, pharmaceutical
1: it. trust culturally in this country. We have yes. we have close to seventy five percent of this country on prescription drugs.
2: Yeah, um, I mean yeah. that's
1: huge. Yeah. That's huge. And um, you know, doctors are scared to death to speak out and mm-hmm. to write exemptions because some of these state medical boards will go after their licenses. I mean, that's a that's fact. True. Yes. And that that yes. is why in the past a lot of doctors did not speak out because even, even if they gave exemptions, they didn't they didn't want to or believed in them. They didn't want to cause, you know, any light on themselves because that would put them professionally at right. risk. The difference now is. We have more doctors willing to speak out. God bless. Them. Yes. At great risk to themselves. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So did the did did the um how much respect was there with the founders with the the medical field? It
2: doctors were definitely respected parts of the community. I mean, Ben Franklin was called a doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, so it but So they were respected, but it wasn't as if science was God, right? It wasn't as if science was the ultimate authority on everything. Um, And so there was sort of a, it didn't dominate everything in society, right? Medicine was, was part of taking of health, but it wasn't. 75% Seventy-five percent, you know, of of the colonists were not on certain medications. They didn't. They didn't have
1: a Fauci saying, "I am science," as Correct. if he was God with a little G. I have to say that. Yes. That's right.
2: Yes. Uh, well, yes. Jane,
1: listen. This has been terrific. Okay, you okay. know, it's a terrific conversation. You know, and I know our audience is going to like it. So, you know, kudos to you for doing all the work that you've done with all ten of your books and your eleventh soon to be published.
2: Yes. Uh, Because I think
1: it's very important for people to understand history, especially in a cancer culture and especially where people do not get their knowledge. You know, they get their knowledge off of Wikipedia as opposed to reading a book.
2: Right. Right. Yes. 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 So, um, yeah, it. you know, we can learn a lot from history and we can learn a lot about human nature from history. And that's what repeats or that's the part that rhymes in history is, is really the human nature aspect of it. And then respecting the good, um, forgiving the pain and the injustice and keeping a healthy balance of of all of that. And one thing I noticed in my last in the book that I've worked on, it has a Thanksgiving theme, giving thanks theme. And the founders gave thanks frequently throughout the American Revolution. they had different days of giving thanks for different events and I realized that culture of being grateful was probably critical to the founding of our country and that that just that attitude of gratitude um, I think is just healthy. It's a healthy way to look at things and keep things in perspective. So
1: Thank you. We'll see you soon.
2: Thank you so much.